somebody needs to pull the fire alarm, the political fire alarm. Four years ago this week, Hillary Clinton was ahead in Wisconsin by 11.5 points. This week in Wisconsin, Biden's only ahead by 6.5. Four years ago, Clinton was ahead in Pennsylvania by 9.2. This week, Biden in Pennsylvania, 5.7. Four years ago, Clinton in Michigan ahead by eight points this very week. Biden, this week in Michigan, 6.7. He's doing worse than Hillary in the states that she lost, where she was way ahead. My friends, everybody off the bench. We have a five alarm fire here and we have to get busy. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. And before we start, just a word about our original underwriter and supporter of this podcast. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Michael Moore here on Rumble. And we have uh, a very important guest with us today. Before we get started, let me issue the good news here. We have passed the 15 million mark of listeners of downloads to this podcast, Rumble with Michael Moore. Do we have sound effects for this? Um, Thank you, everybody who has been listening to this for the last eight months. Um, And thank you uh, to all of those who have subscribed and told their friends and family about Rumble. Our goal was in the first year, let's try to get a million. Let's try to get a million uh, downloads um, and plays here. But 15 million? Nothing to say. Don't know what to say about this um, other than uh, to express my gratitude. And uh, we did a drawing of uh, people who had sent in claiming to be the 15 millionth. And our winner is our, our 15 millionth listener, Giora Pasca. Giora Pasca of Lancaster, California. Congratulations. You are number 15 million here on Rumble. And our prize for you, Giora, is you will be my special guest in the weeks ahead here on Rumble. But, um, don't forget, everybody, this is, uh, if you're listening to this on the first day that we're publishing this episode, uh, this is primary day in Massachusetts. Do not forget to vote. If you live in the first congressional district, don't forget to get out there for Alex Morse for Congress. Alex Morse for Congress in the first congressional district. That's Western Mass, Holyoke, Springfield, the whole area over there, all of you. Great part of the country. Alex Morse, endorsed by AOC, by me. He's the progressive Democrat, and he's trying to toss out a a 30-year incumbent who has been in the pocket of lobbyists and uh, corporate interests for way too long. Also, on a sadder note, uh, this is rent day, and uh, that means millions of you are not paying the rent today. 
Uh, those of you who've lost your federal unemployment insurance, et cetera, this has got to be rough. Um, your rent is due, your mortgage is due. Um, all of us need to be supportive. I'm doing my part for people I know that are facing this problem uh, today. If you have the means to help people you know who are in need today, this week, please do that. All of us, though, can immediately call our members of Congress, especially in the Senate, and tell them to pass whatever legislation is sitting there to provide help, COVID-19 emergency help, to people who are unemployed, people who can't pay the rent. We need to continue the moratorium on evictions. You need to call your member of Congress, especially your senator. If you don't know the name, you just call Capitol Hill. And just they'll ask you for your zip code or, or for the senators, you just say your state and they'll, they'll connect you to your senator. All right, here's the number. You ready? I'll put this on the, on the platform here on the page. You can, you can read it if you don't have a pencil. 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. There's a second number if that one's busy. 202 225 3121. Make that call today. Tell them people can't afford the rent. You can't afford the rent. You can't pay the mortgage. You're unemployed. Let them hear from us today. Let's melt those lines again at the Capitol Hill switchboard. 202-225-3121. And with that, our special guest today. On the night of November 4th, 2008, Barack Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States, winning 69 million votes, more than any American running for president in our history had ever won. And he carried red states uh, such as uh, Indiana and North Carolina, along with swing states such as Florida and Ohio. Barack Obama defeated John McCain in a landslide. And after defeating Hillary Clinton and a host of other Democrats in a very tough primary, it was one of the most brilliant political campaigns that has ever been run. While giving his uh, victory speech in uh, Chicago's Grant Park, Obama gave thanks to what he called the, quote, unsung hero of the campaign, his campaign manager, David Pluff. Pluff, as it turned out, was... And I don't mean to, um, I don't want to embarrass him here, but he was the genius uh, behind getting Barack Obama elected to office. And and then once elected, uh, David became a senior advisor in the Obama White House. He is now the author of a new book. It's called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David Pluff also hosts a podcast called Campaign HQ. Please welcome to Rumble. David Pluff. David, thank you for coming on. Michael, thanks for having me and for that overly uh, generous and embarrassing introduction. Thank you. No, it's, it's, uh, by now, I, most people who are into politics obviously know the story, know you, know what you did. You have to understand, I mean, I mean people, especially my age, you know, we didn't, we never thought we would live to see the day that an African American would be elected to president of the United States. And I, um, that day, 
I mean, I couldn't wait to get to the polls. They, and I'm not the only one. And I got there, and I live in northern Michigan. I've never been in a line. I'd n- never been in a line. It's a rural area. And there was a line coming out the door. And I went in there, and I went in the booth, and I looked down. And in Michigan, we vote with a, like a felt pen in, a little, in the circle on the ballot. And I looked down on the ballot, and there it said, Barack Hussein Obama. And my first thought was, oh, no. Why did they put Hussein there? <laughs> That's the first thought. But the second thought was, oh, my God, what an honest, courageous person. He put, we're in the middle of the Iraq war. He put the name Hussein. I mean, David, there must have been, how many advisors were (laughs) telling him, you must not put Hussein on the ballot. And, and, And I'm sure there must have been an advisor or two in the room going, and by the way, uh, couldn't we call you Barry? You know, I think we can get right. some more votes if we can call you Barry. But well, it was it, it blew my mind. Yeah, well, it was uh, a wild campaign uh, for many reasons. Yeah, so on that narrow question, you know, there are some states that require you to put in your middle name, right? Um, and so it was Barack Hussein Obama, but that's not something he ever shot away from. I mean, the remarkable thing about that campaign, one, you know, we got into it as a tremendous underdog. I mean, the Hillary Clinton of 2008 was so much stronger than the Hillary Clinton of 16. She really was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, um, you know, we figured it'd be a year of uh, a really fun campaign for somebody we believed in. But he, his whole um, approach to that campaign was, I know who I am. You know, uh, I know what I want to say. And people either accept it or not. And then, of course, the campaign was only successful because of millions of Americans in northern Michigan and other places who took the campaign into their own hands. Um, you know, this was the dawn of the Internet. So people were using the Internet, uh, of course, uh, and that fueled a lot of our fundraising, which seemed novel back then. But so much of it was people, you know, making phone calls, talking to neighbors, hosting house parties, you know, doing door knocking. And that was a remarkable thing. You know, I'd spent a long time in politics. And quite frankly, Michael, every election cycle I worked in politics, it was harder to harder to find candidates you just love. For me in 06, it was Deval Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts. Mm. So I, I had one candidate that kept me in politics, but I was getting tired of it. But I'd helped Obama back when he was a state senator running for the U.S. Senate. And it was a remarkable campaign because, you know, we didn't think we were going to win. But you say this is the kind of campaign we all got involved in in the first place, right? Kind of a grassroots campaign, underdog campaign, somebody who doesn't need to be told what they stand for. And and it ended up resulting in, you know, two terms in in the Oval Office, which was remarkable. But that was uh, back in the very beginning of that campaign. That's what made it special. He knew why he was running. None of us thought we were going to (laughs) win. And we had millions of Americans begin to basically lift us up. And, you know, there's a lot of attention paid in politics to people like me these days. Uh, but the most important people in politics are the people out in these communities who are making it happen. Uh, I, you know, I think the most fascinating story in, in some respects of the Obama election is uh, now we have Donald Trump. And so how could two, uh, you know, we I don't know if we've had two people this completely opposite in American history follow each other. Mm. Yeah, it, it it has been. Uh, it took a lot of people, a lot of us, uh, uh, a while to adjust after uh, eight years of President Obama uh, to what we've had to to go through now. And you know, I was I was thinking earlier. So George H. W. Bush was elected in 1988, um, and then Bill Clinton had two terms. But 
um, I don't think Clinton did Clinton ever have more than fifty percent of the vote no. because it, one of no. those times Ross Perot was in there, and then the other both times, yeah, he got forty three percent in ninety two, and I think he got about forty eight or forty nine in ninety six because Perot ran again. Okay, so that means that in the last thirty two years, the only time a Democrat has gotten uh, more than fifty percent of the vote um, was when Barack Obama won in 2008 and 2012. Is that correct? Yeah, well, in, in if you look over the years. last right, 150 years of our country, you know, the only two presidents that have gotten over 51% of the vote twice are uh, Barack Obama, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, mm. Woodrow Wilson, and maybe Andrew Jackson. It just doesn't happen that often. And that just, speaks to okay. yeah. The you know the volunteers that we had on both of those campaigns made it happen. But and this is going to sound like propaganda or fanboy because I work for Obama. I think uh, and sixteen reminded me of this. Um, I think just an impartial political observer would have to say he was someone of unique political gifts. His ability to win enough votes in rural areas and exurban areas, to your point, with the name of Barack. Hussein Obama. So win enough of the white vote where he needed to win it. Uh, and then the really supercharged turnout on college campuses, obviously, uh, with, with African-American, Latino and Asian communities. Um, so, you know, I thought more of that was just going to carry forward to 16, whether it was Bernie or, uh, or you know, Hillary. And, you know, it reminds us that, uh, you know, particularly in 2012, which is an exceedingly hard race, you know, we won re-election with a stubbornly high unemployment rate. Um, And, you know, he had unique political gifts that made running his campaigns uh, quite easy, quite frankly. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. But but in the 16 year period between 2000 and 2016, the uh, the Democrat on the ballot won the popular vote twice, twice in 16 years. That would be Gore in 2000 and Hillary in uh, 2016 and yet lost the White House one won essentially the election, but lost the White House because of the Electoral College. So uh, the question that's on, I think, a lot of people's minds right now, because we're all very, um, how shall we say, um, nervous, um, uh, is how are the Democrats planning to lose uh, this time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, and I, and I mean that, of course, I'm kidding, but I, uh, we can't lose. We can't afford this we can't afford a 2016 um and you know the one thing i've always uh, i don't know if i want to say the word admired about republicans conservatives whatever but boy man do they i can't ever imagine them winning the popular vote and winning by three million votes and and not standing down uh they they would they would (laughs) the last thing they would do is concede and um they just they just have this whatever that is that, that so many of us don't have so many on our side are like well okay i guess we i guess we lost and it's like in the other side they're not like that and i right. i'm very worried about um uh, this election and i'm mostly worried to go back to the introduction of this episode when i said to you i woke up there in the morning uh, there in November of 2008, excited, couldn't wait to vote. I'm not the only one. I'm speaking now for tens of millions. Um, I just am worried nobody is waking up on uh, November 3rd this year 
with that level of excitement. Now, they're going to wake up excited to get rid of Donald Trump. But I've always believed that love conquers hate and that it's been, that we have a better chance of winning when we are really in love with the candidate and what the candidate's going to do, um, as opposed to motivating ourselves uh, to uh, go out of just the utter disregard and disgust over Donald J. Trump. Um, if that's the, you know, if that's the business plan, if that's the model of how we're going to win, that makes me very nervous. Can you speak to that and speak to the people who are listening to this, who, yes, they're going to, they're going to vote for Joe Biden. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, but the level of the way, just the way I even just said that I didn't say, David, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I can't wait. That's, it's and the problem with that is is that if you're not in that headspace, you're going to go vote. But I kind of know you're not going to bring five people with you or ten people with you to the polls, and that is what makes it dangerous. Right. Well, first on your point, I mean, I hope maybe it won't be in my lifetime. I hope it is, but we get rid of the electoral college. But as it currently exists, those are the rules, right? So you know, I'm from the uh, you better win the damn election or none of the rest of it matters wing of the Democratic Party. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I uh, w- particularly in an office like the presidency, it is the most powerful office the world has ever known. It gets more powerful every election cycle. Uh, and so the entire world is affected by what happens. So we have to win this election. So first of all, you're right. You, you need a mixture. Uh, having a lot of animosity towards the incumbent or your opponent helps, but that's not enough. So to me, the most important date in the rest of the campaign is September 29th. Every day matters, but that's the first debate. And my hope is, Michael, that the night of the September 29th and September 30th, if you or I are talking to people, you know, and I've certainly run into them all the time who don't have the degree of passion about Joe Biden I'd like them to have, uh, they feel better. You know, he stood up to Trump. Hopefully he beats them all over that stage. He makes clear on climate change, on health care, on education, on civil rights, all the things he's going to do on the economy. Uh, doesn't have to just be on those debate nights. The campaign has to do a good job of messaging that. And we all do. So, you know, I get questions all the time from people saying, well, I'm not sure about Biden on climate change. So what I share with them, you know, here's all the regulations he'll put in, hopefully on day one. Uh, he's going to try and pass, uh, you know, the most comprehensive um uh, energy package uh, the country's ever seen. He's going to get us back into Paris, you know, right away. Whatever the issue is, we all have an obligation. I think it's hard, particularly with Trump. We see that now. I mean, he dominates the oxygen. The media has, I think, a responsibility in that, and I think they are failing, but he dominates. And so it's really, so Biden's got to get through a message on, I'm going to be better on the pandemic. I'll make sure he distribute a vaccine. Uh, I'm going to rebuild this economy in a better way. Let me tell you how. Uh, I'm going to expand health care. Here's all the things I'm going to do with climate change. Here's my views on education. Think about that. There's like seven or eight campaigns within a campaign you have to run, which is hard against Trump in the first place and hard when you have the pandemic as the background. So I think all of us that say we're going to vote for Joe Biden, we have to find ways to, to motivate ourselves. He may not be our dream candidate, but uh, but I will tell you this. Like, What does a president do? Well, the president does have a bully pulpit, disaggregated though it is, it's still powerful. But they hire good people. They make good decisions. They handle crisis in the switch situation room. They rally our allies on issues like climate change and pandemic. They work with Congress to try and get their agenda passed. They stop the other side from doing bad things. I think Biden's going to do all those things exceedingly well because I've seen him up close. He's got that capability. But I would put it back on people, which is if you're, if you talk to somebody, maybe they didn't even vote in the 20 primary. Maybe they were with Bernie. Maybe they were with Elizabeth Warren. First of all, listen, 
What are your concerns about Biden? What is it you care about? Good organizing starts with good listening. And I guarantee you, you'll have an ability, maybe not to get them to the point that they put on a Biden shirt. Okay, I'd like that. But where they feel better about it, that he's not just the alternative to uh, Donald Trump. So this is critical. So, So most of all, this is on Joe Biden and his campaign. I don't want to let them off the hook here. But it's on all of us not to just shrug our shoulders and find some way to make common ground with those people. And to your point, get them not just to vote, but get five others and make sure they're talking to everybody in their network about how to vote by absentee in Michigan. It's the thing I'm most concerned about, actually. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Trump and his, uh, you know, trying to turn the election into 1968. But, you know, we saw in the primaries in June, a lot of states like New Jersey and New York that his- historically don't have huge vote by mail numbers. You had a fairly high percentage of votes that got spoiled because people mm-hmm. filled out the absentee ballots incorrectly or sent them in too late. So there's just a tremendous amount of basic education that has to happen. By the way, this is a place where I think the media is doing a decent job. You see platforms like Snapchat doing a, a decent job, but that's on all of us too. So uh, yes, by, by mid-October, you certainly want somebody to be, maybe they're not 50-50 on the I hate Trump, lo- love Biden, but it can't be 100%. And again, most of that's going to fall on Joe Biden, but I think it also falls on all of us. Speak to the speak to people who who uh, like myself. Uh, you know, I was out there campaigning for Bernie, but Bernie and I and others who were part of the campaign made it very clear from the beginning that we were going to back whoever the Democratic nominee was, and not just reluctantly back. Um, we, we were going to enthusiastically back uh, the, 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 whatever whoever that had the D by their name on the ballot. Um, but you know, and I know you know this, uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of people, um, and a lot of people who are listening to this. Um, it's, it's like, I don't want them to, I don't want them to give up on their principles, the things they believe in and the things that we need to fight for. Uh, once Joe Biden is in the Oval Office, it's like there is going to this, the, the uprising that's taking place now, the movement in the streets, et cetera. Um, everybody's got to stay active. Everybody's got to wake up on November 4th this time around right. and, and get to work to make sure we get what we want here. Uh, but, you know, people are people. They're just the level of the not just their disappointment, but their lack, certainly their lack of enthusiasm. And it's it's you know, it's been hard for me. And I don't want to just believe that ragging on Trump is going to convince them. So I'm going to just like turn the microphone over to you. And 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 because I know I'm guessing that you have very good friends who voted for Bernie. Um, you have people in your family uh, who are for Bernie. Um, they look at, at Biden's uh, Green New Deal, which is not a Green New Deal, but it's very good. It's got very some very good things in there, but it's not AOC. It's not Bernie. It's not me. Um, wh- what is what what is? I don't want to say your pitch because I got to believe you. I, just from what I know of you, have a lot of empathy for what I'm just describing right now in terms of how people. Are feeling and how they that we can't go much longer without without fixing our climate emergency without uh, you know having people this this wage gap this this income gap that we that just grows and grows and grows in this country um, that if we don't take our stand now if we don't fight now and yes of course former years of Trump will crush this country so David what do you say uh, to people who are listening? And people are thinking right now, even why are you guys talking about this? This is not, this is not what we believe in. And, and, um, you know, I, I want to hear what you say in private to your family members and your friends who, um, are, are not excited about this choice of, of 
of Joe Biden being the candidate and, and thinking that we're never going to see in our lifetime true universal health care for every American where they don't never have to worry about anything. Um, all the things that we started with Obama that we didn't weren't able to complete that we need to complete. Let me hear what you say uh, to your friends and your relatives who feel this well, way. Well, it's a critical question. So I'm going to spend most of my time on Joe Biden. I will say one thing about Donald Trump, but I tell people having worked in the White House and by definition of what I've done in my life, having to be a student of uh, the American presidency, um, you know, Barack Obama's speech at the convention, um, I think, really rattled and alarmed people. And that was the point. He believes that we may not survive the next four years. I believe that as well. Again, the power of the American presidency has only grown. The power in that office is awesome. Trump has not fully utilized it. Uh, if he has a second term, well, he never has to face the voters again. Um, you know, you only have to be an amateur student of history. This is going to be dramatic, but it's true to understand that umpires don't last forever. And, you know, I think we're being tested right now. Uh, if Trump were to win, much more so than we were during the Civil War. Um, mm. I, I think we, the, the, the era of an American democracy, I think, will be over. Um, obviously, at that point, it's too late it. to do anything about climate change. Millions and millions of more people will lose health care. Everything gets stacked for the wealthy. It's basically a grifting government uh, on, on behalf of Trump and his patrons. Uh, it will be unrecognizable. So let's not forget that. You know, this isn't just changing shirts from red to blue. Um, literally, uh, we have this one person in the Oval Office surrounded by these sycophants and grifters uh, who is probably a bigger threat to the union um, than the Southern leaders were back in the early 1860s. Uh, and we've barely scratched the surface of what he's capable of. Now on Joe Biden, what I tell people who say, well, you know, he's been around forever or he wasn't as progressive as Bernie uh, or Elizabeth. All fair questions is, first of all, I listen. What do you care about? So so you've got if they say climate change, what I say is, listen, uh, on Paris, we can't do anything on our own. We have to do this as a set of global nations and communities. We will get back not into just Paris, but Joe Biden and his administration will be sitting around the table with every world leader trying to figure out how to push the envelope on climate change. Every executive action that Trump rolled back, and Biden, I'm sure, has another 50 of them that we didn't get done on the environment and climate change, he'll be able to do without Congress. And he will do all of them in the very beginning. And that will help bend the curve. And then he will try and get through Congress what needs to happen. You're right. Maybe it's not the Green New Deal as, you know, Markey and AOC um, are supporting literally, but it's very much in that spirit, incredibly progressive. And you have to understand whether Bernie was president or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden, they have to get the votes to get something through. And you've got to get the votes of the Joe Manchins of the world. Uh, you know, let's say we get rid of the filibuster, which I hope we do. We're, if we win the Senate back, which is still a big if, we're not going to have more than 51, 52 senators. We have no margin. Joe Biden's got the ability. I saw it up close to really be effective with Congress and to convince people to cast tough votes. So I think on climate, he can get an enormous amount done, whether it's pandemic, uh, solving uh, challenges like cancer and other diseases, uh, climate change, um, disaster response. All of that has to be done as a global community. Trump's walked away. Biden on day one will be ready to hit the ground run to make sure we are working with our allies again, and even not our allies on some of these challenges. Incredibly important. On healthcare, he's going to push the envelope. I mean, one, he was already one of the leading voices for on cancer research, on, on all sorts of healthcare reforms. He feels it personally. And I think on all the other things I'd say, Michael, is 
you know, this is a guy I think who's going to swing for the fences. I really do. Um, this is his third run for the presidency. He really struggled with whether to make this run. As you know, he was kind of down to his last political life before South Carolina. He understands the weight of the office. I think he's going to swing for the fences. So what I would say is anything on a foreign policy scale where a president has enormous ability to get things done without Congress, uh, I think whether you voted for Bernie or Elizabeth uh, or Kamala or Pete Buttigieg, I think you're largely going to like what he's able to do. Executive actions, I think they're going to be very similar to what any of them would have done. So then it comes down to what can you get through Congress? Uh, and I think it is, Bernie Sanders himself has said, the most progressive platform in the history of the Democratic Party. So he's running on a progressive platform. And I think Biden's got the ability to get that done through Congress. Listen, I've worked in Congress. I've helped elect mem- a lot of members of Congress. When I was in the White House, I spent a lot of time talking to Democrats. I can't tell you how hard it is. And that's before you even get to your own, the other party, just getting your own party, you know, to cast enough votes to get something across is incredibly hard. And so I think he's going to be very effective at convincing some of those, let's say, Democratic senators from 45 to 51 that they have to be there to get something done. Now, we, of course, hope Republicans will cooperate and maybe on things like infrastructure, they will. But Trump may lose this election. But Trumpism is going to be alive and well. And I think we shouldn't expect peace to break out in Washington. But if you look at the levers that a president has to move forward on on climate change, on health care, on tax policy, on foreign policy, Biden knows those levers. He's running on a very progressive platform, the most progressive platform, more progressive than the ones Obama ran on. uh, And I think he'll be successful. Um, And he's a good person. I mean, that's what I always tell people. I mean, I, I'll give you a personal story. You know, when back in, I think it was 2012, my my father died in, in April of 2012. Uh, you know, incredibly busy time for me professionally working in the White House reelect. Um, and I remember talking to my mother uh, maybe a week or 10 days um, after the the, the the funeral. I talked to her in the interim, but she, for the first time, mentioned to me, oh, by the way, I talked to Joe Biden again today. I'm like, what do you mean you talked to Joe Biden again today? Joe Biden didn't know my mother. Joe Biden just called my mother. I think he called her three or four times in the month after my father died mm. just to see how she's doing and, and lend an ear uh, and, and, and voice and, and a, a voice of comfort. This is a good person. And I know that sounds soft and I know it's not a policy. We desperately need it. And it just doesn't matter that he's good for good sake. When he's making policy decisions, I've seen it up close. He thinks about that minor. He thinks about that nurse. He thinks about that teacher. He thinks about that civil rights activist. Uh, he is such a good, empathetic person who understands the working yeah. people of this country so intuitively. It's not just an act, this guy from Scranton thing. He brings it into every conversation every decision. So I think he's got an opportunity to be a really, really good president. Uh, And I hope over the course of the next several weeks, uh, people who are a little lukewarm, they don't have to love everything about him, but find a thing or two that you can get passionate about. And that passion is contagious with others because they'll be surprised. Oh, wait, I thought you were kind of down on Biden. Well, no, no, I found this out or I liked what he said or I saw this interview clip and I'm ready to roll. I can't tell you how that's how change happens. That's how organizing happens. The most important voices are those types of voices. The people who said, you know what, I wasn't sure, but now I've decided I'm all in. That is much more effective than somebody who was there from the beginning. You know, you're right. He is a good person. Uh, I don't know him like you. I mean, you worked in the White House there with him, but I, I've been with, you know, in the same room with him, with him at the 04 convention when Barack Obama gave his historic speech that introduced himself to the nation, I was sitting 10 rows from the stage on the floor there in Boston. I was with the Michigan uh, uh, delegation and it blew me away. It blew me. But to be that kind of that close to it. And then 
and then I got up. I went up. I went up to the uh, to the sort of mezzanine level of the convention, and Joe Biden sees me, and he just that that smile of his just uh, goes ear to ear. And uh, you know, I was I'd never met him before that, and he um, he came up to me and just started talking my ear off about uh, this movie of mine or that uh, the thing I was fighting for at the time or whatever. And, um, and I could see in the course and I, I sat down with him there and we watched some of the convention and, um, um, I instantly, my, you know, we all have a bullshit detector and mine was, <laughs> mine was telling me that, wow, you know, and of course the way he was speaking, I don't want to quote uh, any of his language, but, um, uh, <laughs> when the microphone picked it, picked when the affordable care act uh, was passed there and the, he was standing there with, um. President Obama and the microphone picked him up telling uh, President Obama what a what an important moment this was. Uh, <laughs> it's, if, you, if you don't know what I'm if people are listening to this or maybe you're, you're younger, um, he, he dropped an F-bomb into the microphone. This guy was dropping F-bombs all over the place. <laughs> They're sitting there with him in Boston. I thought, wow, I mean, don't. Yes, he's got the he's got the perfect teeth and he's got the uh, the nice suit, but he really is from the working class. And those of us from the working class can immediately detect uh, who grew up like we grew up. Right. I think you're right about that, and I also think, and and and, and I hope this doesn't sound morose or anything, but the man is seventy. He will be seventy eight years old when he takes the oath of office. Um. So that means that if you're seventy eight, you're in the last fifteen to twenty years of your life that don't mean to put a, a due date on anybody. I hope everybody makes it past a hundred, but that's the truth. And, um, I have this sense from him when you said swinging for the fences that, um, that I, I don't think he wants anything more than to do everything that is right and just. And I don't, I got to believe in that he in the white house is not going to be thinking about, he's not going to be in the head of Joe Biden from the past in terms of he had to take this position or that position and whatever. I, I just have a belief he's going to come from his conscience and from his heart. And no, he's, he's not going to be me. He's not going to be you, David. He's not going to, but he's going to, I just, you know, I know people are listening to this and they think, they think I've drank the Kool-Aid here, but it's not that I'm telling you, I'm, I've been around enough people and I can just sense, and you were with him. I mean, you're in the white house there every day. And that's just the story of, of the wonderful thing of him calling your mom. Um, and he doesn't showboat it. He doesn't tell anybody that. He didn't even tell you that. He didn't tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I got to believe. And, I, and you know, I, I was a couple of weeks ago, I, I said to my sister, um, you know, we all grew up Irish Catholic. And I said, what do you think it is about Biden? Because I got to tell you, I believe, forget about whether he's endorsed Medicare for all or whatever. Whatever comes across his desk, no matter what he has said or whatever in the past, he is going to do what's best for for the most Americans. He's gonna he's gonna think like that, and he's going to do the right thing. And and she said, "Yeah, I think yeah." I said, "So why is why, what? Why is that? Why do I feel?" And she says, "Because he's Catholic." I said, "Yeah, but no, come on." And she, my sister, I think is now an atheist. Um, but I, I said, "Wow, you're saying because he's Catholic?" He says, "Yeah, you know how we were raised." We were raised to, you know, believe that you can't get into heaven without a permission slip from the poor, that we will be judged by how we treat the least among us. 
And that's, oh, yeah. real, that's who he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he went to Catholic school in Delaware, as did I, right? And so uh, maybe that's the reason he curses so much, uh, particularly back then. <laughs> you couldn't curse much uh, in those precincts. But I, I think that it is that is in his DNA. There's no question about that. I also think, to your point about his age, I think it was really smart of him to identify himself as a transitional figure, understanding that what uh, is to come uh, is a really strong Democratic bench. I'll never forget back, go back to 08. This was like the summer of 07. We were, you know, down 30 points to Hillary Clinton in the polls at that point, but we were considered her main contender. And I remember I was in Iowa with Obama and, you know, he, we were like sitting out on a curb somewhere before an event. He's like, you know, what's really interesting, Pluff, is how in this big country of mine, in this big party of ours, am I like the main contender to Hillary Clinton? Like, we got to work on our bench. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, it's an exciting bench. And so, um, you know, Joe Biden wins. He very well may serve two terms. So maybe this is 28. If it's not, it's 24. But, you know, it is such an exciting group of people. One of the things that I was so excited about in 2018, which is really the first time in my career, I wasn't actively working in a campaign. So I just got to watch the results like everybody else did, right, on my phone and on TV, was every time they'd post one of the winner of the congressional race, you know, more often than not, it was like a young uh, woman, right, or somebody who was just like had an amazing personal story, not a career politician. And I think a lot of those people, the other thing about it is you don't have to, you know, Joe Biden's now been in politics 50 years and he's finally the Democratic nominee. You don't have to wait anymore. Donald Trump didn't, Joe Barack Obama didn't. So some of these people that we see elected um, to statewide office uh, or even Congress, you know, it doesn't mean that they can't run for president at the first available opportunity, uh, because I think most people run for president too late. So I'm also excited about Biden's role to like stabilize the country, swing for the fences, do a lot of good progressive things when he's there, but also understand that we've got a really exciting bench now uh, that I think looked pretty barren, let's say six or, or eight years ago, but it's really filled in in a way that makes me really, really excited. And, you know, there are people who are on the far left of the spectrum, center of the spectrum, center right, center left. Uh, but I think all all driven by that same sense Joe Biden has, which is what's the point of running for office or what's the point of serving in office if you're not going to do something with it to help the least fortunate among us? Well, I'll never forget when Barack Obama, uh, this was back in 09. You might recall we had 60 senators that, by the way, that was nice. I'm not sure if that'll happen again for yeah, us. I hope it yeah. will. But uh, we lost that Massachusetts special election uh, and uh, when Scott Brown took over Teddy Kennedy's seat. And there was a view, including I, I'm not going to name names on your show, but a lot of Democrats I talked to in Congress wanted to give up on health care, on the Affordable Care. You know what? It's not going to happen now. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget talking to him. I wasn't working in the White House then, but I was in his office the night of that election. And, you know, he just uh, looked around the room and he says, we didn't run so hard in, in 07 and 08 and make all those commitments to the American people just to basically occupy this office. You know, the, the whole point of the exercise was to do something with the office, to do something when it's hard, to do something when even people in your party think it's the wrong idea. So uh, I just think that orientation um, and it's obviously in the Republican Party right now, there's a sickness. But there are Democrats, you know, Michael, you talk to them, who they run for office. None of them ran for office to simply stay there. Uh, but but a lot of people don't want to leave Washington. They don't want to leave their state capital. And we need people who are going to say, the hell with it. 
for whatever time I'm here, maybe I'm here for four years, maybe I'm here for 14 years, uh, I'm going to call each one like I see it. Uh, and I'm going to make decisions first and foremost through the prism of how does it help those uh, who have been, um, you know, whether it's through systemic mm. racism or um, misogyny uh, or, you know, the working class of all races and genders who have not been front and center often enough. So that's what Biden brings. But I'm so excited to see that this next um, sort of class of Democrats who are going to be on the national stage, they all bring that too. It's just intuitive to them. And I'm excited about that. I've said on this podcast, especially on the, the day he picked uh, Kamala Harris uh, to be his running mate, um, that what was so impressive about picking her is that he wasn't picking her so he could win California. <laughs> I, right. I, I'm, you know, I don't want to take anything for granted, but let's just hope that California is okay. Um, and I said on this podcast, he didn't just pick his VP. I think he understood that he was also picking the next candidate, the next presidential candidate, the next person to run for and become the next president of the United States. And, um, and that it seemed like that, that, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you think that he was thinking that far ahead or he just, he just liked Kamala Harris? To me, it seemed like um, he was taking the long view of this, not just for his presidency, but for after him. Right. Well, first of all, I, I think it was during a debate uh, where he was first asked this question. And what I admired about Biden's answer was most politicians would have hemmed and hawed a little bit. Well, yeah, I think I think I'll likely to pick a woman, but I, I'm going to look at everybody. He's just like, yes, I'm going to pick a woman. So a very strong statement, uh, which I which I thought was great. I think he did pick Kamala Harris mostly for the job of vice president not about the campaign trail between now and November of this year, or laying hands on the next president. Um, I'm sure he, by picking her, thinks she could be president, whether that is because something happens to him or she ends up running or winning. I think it was more about the office because he uniquely went through that process of, of VP selection. He was picked. He did the job for eight years. And I'd say this, I love Kamala Harris. I'll never forget uh, back in, in 08, um, you know, being in Des Moines, Iowa, in the close of the Iowa caucuses. And she came out for like 10 days, her and Eric Garcetti. Uh, and they just out knocking on doors in like below zero uh, weather. So uh, she's someone I'll always have a great uh, respect uh, and, and admiration for and fond memories. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here. So by the way, first of all, Biden could win. Let's all hope he does. I'm sure we'll talk about how that couldn't happen. But if he wins, maybe he'll serve eight years. Maybe he serves four. But, um, you know, Kamala Harris has a leg up, but things have changed a lot, too. So, you know, vice presidents, you know, whether it's Al Gore or George H.W. Bush, like that was pre-internet. Parties were more powerful. So, you know, everyone's going to know who she is. Hopefully she'll do a great job. People feel good about the Biden administration. So she'll have a, a strong platform to run on if she were to choose to do that. But any other Democrat can mount a national campaign overnight you know, if they've got a compelling message uh, and understand how to reach and motivate people. So uh, I would imagine whether it's 24 or 28, uh, the next time there's a Democratic primary, uh, if Kamala Harris uh, is in the field, um, she'll be a strong candidate. But there'll be a lot. She'd be the first person to tell you that, I'm sure. Not that she's thinking about it now, that there'll be a big field um, because I think it's 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 strange as, as punishing as running for president is. And the Internet and social media brings a different level of scrutiny for sure. It's also easier. Again, 
if you're a compelling person with a compelling message, you can build a national campaign. Look what Bernie Sanders is able to do. Um, and so look what Donald Trump was able to do. Look what uh, Ben Carson was able to do. Um, and so I think that um, you don't have to come out of traditional party infrastructure or even be holding a powerful office to be successful. But I thought uh, he decided, um, you know, who's who do I think of this field? And listen, he had so many great people, including your governor in Michigan, uh, to potentially choose from. But who will be my most trusted? counselor? Who is in it for the country, not for themselves? Who can get stuff done with Congress? Who can be effective with world leaders? Like Biden, if he were to win, is not coming into a presidency um, with a strong foundation in terms of where the country is. So he's going to have to be in firefighting mode across a whole number of fronts. So this VP, you know, this job used to be described as a warm bucket of spit. It is not that anymore. The other thing about Kamala Harris is she ran a massive organization in California. So she's had to be a strong manager, hire good people, understand what she has to be involved with and what you need to delegate. I know none of that stuff is sexy, uh, but it's incredibly important uh, if you're going to have a functioning government. And I think that's another lesson we've seen in the last four years uh, is when you have somebody, whether they go in and, you know, you witness some of this in Michigan uh, with a prior governor, but you see this uh, at the national level or big states. When somebody doesn't hire good people, when they don't feel positions, uh, when they don't feel the need to follow the rule of law, uh, when they feel that they are not accountable to people or the law, um, when they starve government of talent and innovation and, and ingenuity, we all pay the price. And that's another thing I think Biden, Biden's going to hire really good people, not just at the cabinet level, but in all those positions and give them the kind of uh, autonomy they need to make stuff happen in a positive way for the American people. So, um, you know, Trump has not just hired criminals and grifters, he's also starved government. You know, I think Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, is, for those of you that haven't read it, such an important read because yeah. it really captures the devastation. And it's going to take a long time to dig out from under that. Yeah, just to just to repair, for instance, the EPA, uh, the, the, the things that he and his administration do on a weekly, daily basis that don't make the news because we're so consumed with these this monumental once in a century things that we're having to deal with. We don't see what's happened to the Department of Interior or any of these other things of the devastation that's that's been wreaked here. Exactly. Um, I think you're exactly right about that. Let me, let me just go back. As you mentioned, when Barack Obama first, you know, became president, took office in 09, that uh, there were 60 uh, senators who either were Democrats or voting, they were independents, voting with Democrats. Um, you know, do you ever look back now uh, and, and think, that those first two years when, when I'll say we, um, if you don't mind me including myself in the general we of how we were in power, in we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the White House, that, um, you know, President Obama came in with a, you know, I assume and I'd read his books, saw a good sense of who he was and what people call the kumbaya uh, years of wanting to come in and get along with Republicans, reach out to them, and let's do this together for the American people. Forget about the partisanship. Of course, the, 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 the night of his inauguration, the Republicans who met in that restaurant in Washington, D.C., this right. infamous dinner of Republican leadership in Congress, where they just decided right then, we are going to say no to everything. We're going to block everything. It doesn't matter how good the idea is. It He has to be stopped. And they had no intention of, of getting along. And I wonder now, uh, 
had Barack Obama and the Senate and House leadership, all Democratic, um, had they just said, okay, you know, we reached out, we did it the nice way, you don't want to play nice, now we're going to push through and do what, you know, do what Roosevelt did in his first years, just come in like gangbusters and get these things done for the American people. Do you wish that that had happened? Do you wish that there had been a more aggressive uh, uh, Barack Obama at that time taking advantage of the fact that we had both houses of Congress? Well, I'd say, look, first, we have to remember the conditions he came in on, right? The country was in absolute freefall, absolute freefall. Mm-hmm. We yeah. were this close to being in a Great Depression, not a severe recession. And so he had to do everything within his power. And, you know, he did get a few Republicans to vote for the Recovery Act, just three, if I recall. So most of that was Democrats. That was, you know, the most important thing in the very beginning was how do we put the measures in place to put a break on this freefall and give us a chance to build back. And so, um, you know, that, um, but the thing I'm, so, so I would say the one thing about healthcare, you know, that took a long time, remember, because working with Chuck Grassley and where they're going to be Republicans and you probably could have said, you know what, they're not on the level here. <laughs> so we're just going to fast forward and accelerate and do it all with Democrats. Uh, I think you probably would have looking back on it really like that period of time to be uh, much more brief. But at the end of the day, despite the fact, listen, you know, I uh, consume political polling probably as voraciously as anybody over the last generation. Okay. And so like, where, where was the American people on? Remember the auto bailout? Support mm-hmm. 15%. Mm-hmm. Wall Street reform, that even wasn't supported by more than 30% of the people, if I remember. Cap and trade, because people are like, hey, we're in an economic crisis. That's all we want is to focus on that, even though, of course, the auto bailout was core to the recovery. So despite the fact uh, that there were political headwinds, and despite the fact that you're dealing with a once in a in a in a generation or two economic crisis, um, you know, still passed health care reform, uh, Wall Street reform, as you remember, the House of Representatives passed cap and trade. Okay, that got passed by the House, Democratic uh, Senate wouldn't pass it. Mm-hmm. So did you know? Then it obviously at the end of of, of ten, uh, don't ask, don't tell, any number of important things. So I think he wasn't cautious. Uh, he still swung for the fences on things, even though the American people said, you know, we're not sure this makes sense because we're in the middle of a crisis. So why are you doing all these things, particularly when you have a unified opposition? That's the other thing about that dinner. Remember, they said we're going to say no to everything and we're going to turn him into the most liberal Democratic president ever, because if we agree with Barack Obama on anything, he looks reasonable, you know, and we want to turn him into somebody who is basically the other. Uh, which is what they try to do really during his entire eight years, but particularly those first four. Right. So I think the healthcare d- debates and negotiations, when it was clear you weren't going to get Republican votes or enough of them, you probably could have accelerated that. But I think if you look back at that period, he did everything he could, including deeply unpopular things with the American public uh, to save the American economy. They're popular now. They weren't popular then. You know, even healthcare reform, you know, people were not jazzed out in the, Amer- you know, a lot of people, you know, in our party were, but the, the average voter thought, why are we doing health care reform? Even though I know it has to be a reform, like now is not the time to do it. And his answer was presidents for 100 years have talked about doing it. I'm going to spill every bit of political capital I have right now to do it. And by the way, a lot of members lost their seats in part because they supported that. And when you talk to them today, they say uh, they're very proud of that. You know, that's kind of the whole point uh, is if you're afraid, uh, you know, to lose an election, you're never going to do anything. Uh, that really moves the ball forward for the American people. So so I think there's pieces of that where the timelines could have been certainly depressed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, but but I think if you look at the at the end of the day, what he got done in those first two years 
during an economic crisis, uh, I remain very proud of that. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and again, I, I wish the Senate had passed cap and trade, but yeah. you know, my, it's been a long time now, but my recollection of that period was they said, listen, we can either do health care or cap and trade. Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats did both. It would yeah. have been great if the Senate Democrats had done that. But I'm now speaking as the kid from Flint, Michigan, uh, the birthplace of General Motors. Uh, the, the auto bailout, I mean, this was amazing. I remember the day that this happened. Of course, General Motors and Chrysler declared bankruptcy. And President Obama essentially said, uh, we are going to take these two companies over and fix them. And it was like, I said this, I said, I think Obama just became the CEO <laughs> General Motors. Yeah, I think it's, I think I think it felt like uh, that to him many days. Yes, yeah. Well, he was he. Somebody had to be in charge. Somebody had to take the reins, <clears throat> and he uh, was the de facto uh, CEO of General Motors. And I remember thinking, oh my god, this is the moment where not only do we save the auto industry, save all these jobs, but we we deal with the fact that the internal combustion engine is the number one cause of our climate. Uh, problem here and what could president obama do as the ceo what, how could what else, what could these factories build in terms of transportation that wasn't just the same old same old you know uh, gunking up the air um and i don't know was there ever any discussion about how we could we could why don't we switch to light rail why don't we use these factories we don't have a single bullet train. We we and the Brits invented the train. We don't have a single bullet train. They've got dozens of bullet trains in China. Why? What can we do? I mean, take me inside there in the White House. Was there any sort of discussion about uh, not not that they were suddenly drunk with power because they were running? Well, okay, they were in Chrysler too, so you know, no offense to Chrysler, but um, there was a moment there where. Other things could have happened. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just a foolish optimist. And I'm just thinking, you know. And I was excited about Obama being president and whatever of what could happen. But I'm just curious. Did anything while he was the de facto CEO of GM and Chrysler? What else was being discussed there in terms of what could what could we do? Well, so much of the Recovery Act and some of the incentives around the auto bailout were around creating a new green energy economy. So, uh, you know, remember, uh, it, it helped propel uh, the establishment of the Volt. The electric uh, vehicle tax credit uh, really is the reason that so many of the mainstream auto companies, companies like Tesla, were able to reach the kind of uh, market share they have now. We, we want to see that grow, of course. Uh, remember the Solyndra scandal, that was a, which was not a scandal. It was all about the Recovery Act really putting a huge emphasis, both in dollars and focus, on uh, new industries uh, that would create both jobs, um, but also be good for the climate. So if you look back at that, and there's been a lot of Michael uh, Grunwald, Ron Klain, these folks have great uh, writings on this, which captures this part of the story, which is what you should do, right? It's not just bailing out the water. It's how do you build a better boat? And that's what was done. Um, and, you know, the Republicans, you remember the first term, a lot of the criticism of Obama was about that. Like he's picking winners or losers or he's deciding to focus too much on the green economy and creating new industries. That's not what we should be doing. We should just be cutting taxes. So that actually is when you look at the facts of what was done in the story, the foundation for so much of that economy today, which is growing wind and solar and electric vehicles, was really accelerated by his leadership and how the Recovery Act was dealt with. The thing about the auto bailout, I mentioned that it was supported by 15% of the American people. I will tell you, as a political practitioner, that shocked me. 
because I figured, you know, okay, this is something that at least 50 to 60% of the people would support, right? It's the American auto industry. Mm. And it just tells you at that point how burned out people were. They were They're like, you know, we've already given the banks and a bunch of people a bunch of money. Yeah. And even though we like GM, we're not, we won't give anybody any, not another red cent. Right. And that to me was really. Yeah. Um, and they weren't just burned out. Millions had lost their homes. I mean, right, people were right, just right. utter despair. Right. You know. And so they just, they, they were kind of maxed out. But I think the story of the Recovery Act, the auto bailout, uh, one, it's really green shoots that have popped up all over the country. And again, as I think you think about a Biden administration uh, and all the great people he's going to hire, as they think about the next uh, stages of what the government can do to help on the economic recovery coming out of the pandemic, of course, there's going to be a lot of focus there, which is how do we do more to really accelerate and incentivize this transition? Um, so again, we see now that, you know, wind and solar and natural gas and all these things uh, are much more part of our energy picture than they were. That didn't happen by accident. Let's get to uh, talking about how we beat Trump in your book here, uh, Citizen's Guide, uh, Beating Donald Trump. Um, because this is, this is, I, I tell everybody, this is, we have one job between now and November 3rd, and this is our job. Um, this has to happen. There's, there's, there's no other excuse. Um, we won't have our country. Um, we've lost a lot of it already. We don't, we can't survive four more years of this. What do we need to do? And, and, you know, yes, I've been telling everybody early voting in Michigan starts September 19th. If you go on the, all the vote, uh, voting sites of, you know, when you can vote, most of the places I've, they don't have Michigan right. They don't understand that. I call it early voting. We don't have early voting polling sites in Michigan, but starting on September 19th, you can go to your city clerk, your town clerk, your village clerk, go wherever the voting uh, office is where you live, walk in and ask for what we call an absentee ballot. And you can vote right there at the clerk's office, right there, starting on September 19th. And I'm trying to get the word out to people about the importance of doing this early. Yes. Our secretary of state in Michigan this weekend uh, talked about how in our primary uh, that we had for uh, congressional candidates and whatever a few weeks ago, um, <clears throat> that there were, uh, uh, I think, something like um, there were 10,000, uh, around 10,000 spoiled ballots, absentee ballots. 6,000 of them were because, and these were people that mailed them in enough time before the Michigan primary in August, and yet they arrived after, after the day or two or three or four after the election. 6,000 ballots, 6,000. Hillary lost Michigan by 10,000 votes. Right. 6,000 right. in the primary, and it's a Democratic primary, and it's a Democratic Secretary of State, and she just said, look, this slowdown in the post office, this has been going on for months. And, and you know, a lot of us didn't figure it out uh, right away. But my friend that I went to high school with, he photographed his, um, his, his ballot arrived at his house on, it was either the day of the election or the day after the election. And he said, how many other people did this happen to? I... I met the deadline by two days, two days before the deadline to ask for an absentee ballot. And I didn't get it till after the election. It was like, oh man, we are in trouble here. What are we going to do? David, help us. 
Um, no, uh, well, right. It's not just well, the post office. I, I don't mean right. to ask that as a post yeah, office no. question, but I'm saying that in your book, I mean, this is you have a very clear, very, I don't want to say simple, you're not a simple writer, but I mean, let's break this down. How do we do this? How, what, and what is the work that each of us need to do between now and November 3rd? Right. Well, I think you laid out a great example of what we need to do. So I wrote this book pre-pandemic, right? So uh, I'll get to the rest of it. The most important thing is making sure people vote in a way that allows their vote to be counted. So all of us should be sharing correct information with our circle. Now, Michael, you have a big platform. People have big platforms, I think, can share it nationally. But if you're out there and you've got 50 friends and family members and colleagues that you know you know are going to vote for Joe Biden and Democrats, make sure you... Uh, to the point of annoying them, uh, you know, here's the deadlines. Uh, you know, you need postage or you don't, depending on the state. Here's where you sign. Here's how you make your choice. I hope there's tremendous amount of local news, the social media platforms. We basically need to narrate people through this so that they don't make mistakes because it's not just getting a ballot in late. People make mistakes. Uh, number two, uh, you know, really pushing people to vote early at the first available opportunity in states where you can do it in person, do it in person. If you, but you may have a wait, so make sure you budget your time so you can wait. Uh, vote the very first day you get your absentee ballot, the very first day, do it and send it in. Uh, most states allow you to check to make sure your absentee ballot was received. Do that as well. Um, make sure that you are volunteering to be a poll worker. We have a crisis in this country of not having enough in-person poll workers. Uh, a lot of people are going to vote by mail this time, probably most people. Um, but there's still going to be people who vote on Election Day or vote early, and you can help uh, with that. So so have, make sure every, you yourself and everybody you know has a plan for voting. Secondly, you've got to be in the social media game. You've got to be sharing content. So if Biden's speech today, we're talking on Monday, the speech he's giving in Western Pennsylvania. If you like a clip of it, share it. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. Uh, if you see a great attack ad against Trump, share it. Like you need to be sharing content. Trump has a huge advantage. He's got a, a much more uh, dominant social media following himself, but he's got Fox and Breitbart, and Ben Shapiro, uh, and Sinclair, and they are coordinated and they are massive. Uh, we have a huge institutional deficit, something, Michael, I know you've been concerned about for a long time. Uh, we need to make that up with citizens being in the game. Uh, you need to figure out what can I, how much time do I have to help on the election? Maybe it's five hours a week. Maybe it's three hours a week. Maybe it's 10 hours a week. Volunteer to make phone calls uh, and write postcards. There may be door knocking in some places uh, in the fall. We don't know yet. Be ready to do that. If you live in Michigan, quite frankly, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, you have a special responsibility. I apologize for the burden that's been placed on you, but basically the fate of the world is on your shoulders. That's right. So you, if you live in those states, you've got to double down. You've got to find a way to do more uh, than you ever thought was possible, quite frankly. Because listen, there's a chance that Joe Biden wins this race by a big margin. But I think at the end of the day, this race is going to tighten. It's going to be super close in these battleground states. And to your point, like this could come down again to 10, 12, 14,000 votes in Michigan. I hope it doesn't. And so it sounds uh, trite, but it's not. Every single vote counts. This could come down to a vote or two per precinct. And I always tell people, like, let's say you're going to make phone calls. Let's say you're given a list to call uh, recently registered Democrats in Michigan. Maybe you live in Michigan, maybe you don't. And you call 150 people in like four hours. Most people don't answer. Some people hang up on you. And after all that time, there's like two people you talk to and you think you had an effect on. Like they're going to vote. Like, just be okay with that. 
Because if 5,000 other people are doing it that day, that's 10,000 votes. That's what Mich- Hillary lost Michigan by. That's like, right. you have to p- go into this with, I, uh, it's a very important part of the book, I thought. Like, not overstating how, like, romantic it is or easy it is. Like, whether you're door knocking or you're calling people, you're not going to reach many people. So just know that. Yeah. But know that if you reach one or two or three people in an afternoon. That's all it takes, yeah. Yes, because on aggregate, that's how we make it happen. On an average, Hillary lost by two votes per precinct in Michigan. Two. Right. Two. If you just got two people in a precinct because of your work here in the next couple of months to vote, that literally could make uh, the difference. I, 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 I totally believe that. But, I, you know, we had a very hard time in Michigan. We couldn't, and the, my friends in Wisconsin did too, we couldn't convince the campaign to send the candidate. Please send her here. Um, then we we couldn't even get yard signs. We could not get yard signs in Michigan. And it was, I know it's a little thing, but it was very upsetting. And, um, and so uh, after the, you know, election, I, um, uh, was, uh, interviewing, let's just say a very high, high up person in the, um, uh, Clinton campaign. And he said, I guess I've identified the gender now. Um, I said, why couldn't we get yard signs in Michigan? And he said, honestly, um, there's a lot of, we had a lot of internal debate about this. And it was the feeling of the majority. He said, not myself, but uh, that putting Hillary yard signs up and down roads in Michigan would just remind the Trump voters that they got to get out and vote and they got to stop her because there was such animosity toward Hillary. And so that's, it was a conscious decision. And um, wow, I just, I just, to run scared like that. It was just, um, you know, I just want to, re- so, you know, I belong to the local Democrats uh, there in, in uh, Michigan, in the, uh, in this rural county. This is the third email I've received now in the last week where, um, you know, we're all going to meet on this corner on U.S. Highway 31 to pick up our yard signs for Gary Peters, for Senate, for uh, the, our person who's running for Congress, Ferguson state state house and state senate signs here's the here's the subject heading no capital letters no biden signs for uh tuesday september 1st so that's the you know picking up the yard signs i got the same thing for last saturday and 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 another notice last week come get your signs but there were and this is what it reads it says i have this is the the head democrat uh i've just been informed that there are no biden signs uh, for this Tuesday, uh, due to the lack of Biden signs, I will only have Gary Peter signs and, you know, the other candidates, uh, please tell me, I heard, I heard that, you know, the, over the weekend, Biden campaign announced they were going to go out to some States, uh, Southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, to begin with, um, tell me that the Biden campaign is not doing what the Hillary campaign did and ignoring Michigan. Uh, this time, it will be a fatal error, and and tell me that it's just because there just hasn't they just haven't the printing press hasn't been able to print these signs uh, because um, we so desperately don't want Michigan in the red column on November third. Uh, we need to redeem ourselves because we didn't get those two votes per precinct out uh, back in twenty sixteen. Right. Just to, but you know what? But I'm not asking you to give us hope if it's false hope. So if, if there's a reason, who do we contact and how do we make this happen? 
Right. Well, it's a great question. So one, I think strategically they're not making a mistake because you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, those are kind of the core six battlegrounds. And they say they're all in. They're also not, um, you know, asleep at the switch as it relates to states Trump's trying to win that Hillary won, like Minnesota, New Hampshire, Nevada. And they're also, you know, playing in Georgia and Texas. So advertising dollars. So I'd say a couple things. So so no, I think uh, I know General Malley Dillon, uh, Biden's campaign manager very well. She's she's just spectacular. Um, and a good campaign manager worries about everything, right? Is not overconfident. So I think you're going to see them uh, do all they can in these states. So, I, but a couple things specific. One is Biden is starting to travel. I think we need to see a lot more of that. Now, you know, it should be within the bounds of what health experts thinks is safe. But I think he needs to be out in these states. Uh, I think that you know, five six times a week he needs to be out in these states. Uh, and then things like yard signs matter. So I would imagine you're going to see them soon because, particularly in this election, where some let's say somebody voted for Trump last time in a small town, and most of people know that it's a small town, right? And they have a Biden sign up. That's incredibly important permission structure for others. Yes. Uh, so anybody who wants a yard sign, I remember, listen, I remember there was times when Barack Obama would be flying around the country. And if I wasn't on the, the plane with him, I'd get a call. And almost invariably, it wasn't to say, hey, that was an awesome event we just had, right? <laughs> it was, hey, I met with the local volunteers and they're mad because they need something. Sometimes it was the yard signs. Sometimes it was the data wasn't right. Just fix it. And he never would countenance any like excuse. You know, he was just so built to like support the volunteer organizers. He's like, they're out here busting their ass, okay, in between their two jobs and taking their kids. I don't really care. Just get them what they need. So uh, it's a true story. Uh, and so yard signs matter. Uh, making sure that there's enough staff to support the volunteers matter. And so Michigan, listen, of the six core battlegrounds I mentioned, I think Michigan right now is the one that you'd say, if the election were held today, probably falls most easily to Biden. But it's still close. Trump has closed the gap here, uh, not entirely. but And there is one poll that was out uh, over the weekend that showed Trump ahead in Michigan by two points. Most of them, Biden's ahead by two or four points, but it used to be 10 or 12 points and it has freaked everybody out in Michigan. So here's what I'd say. So you've got Michigan, you know, first of all, you've got obviously a governor, uh, you've got all the the constitutional elected offices, I think, you've got local candidates. All of Uh, Lansing, all of Lansing is Democrat. Yeah, so talk to them, get them to put pressure on the Biden campaign. I actually write about this in my book, actually, not knowing who the nominee would be. Like if you ask politely once or twice for something like in your local volunteer organization, you haven't got it, tweet, put it on Facebook, say we're pissed that we're not getting our yard signs. I know that can seem aggressive, but since the fate of the Republic is at stake here, maybe the fate of the world, like we don't have time to be polite. So I actually would like if you're not getting what you need from the Biden campaign or any other campaign, you know, figure out a way to make an urgent, polite request. But if things are dragging Hell, take your com, you know, sometimes that's what it takes, quite frankly. And it's not like a sin of commission on their part. You know, as you said, maybe they're behind on printing or, you know, they've obviously started to raise a lot of money. So they're expanding their budgets for things. But I don't think any of us have, um, we are not in a mode right now where we can quietly abet poor performance, right? So if you're out there busting your ass for Gary Peters or, uh, you know, Joe Biden, or if you're in North Carolina for Cal Cunningham or Joe Biden, and you need stuff you're not getting, um, you know, make a way, find a way to make your request. But it's fine to say, hey, look, I picked up all these signs and Joe Biden's wasn't here. What's going on? You can tweet at Joe Biden. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Mm. Honestly. Oh, oh, and who, actually, if I were to pick up the phone today, who, who do you recommend I call? 
uh, there at the campaign. I'm not going to do it on, on the podcast. Right. Well, yeah. So, so the, the state leadership is super empowered. I, I don't know the name of your state director, but there'll be a state director in Michigan, political director. They're the best people to talk to. But in, uh, but in they, 2016, you know, they were as frustrated as I and everybody yeah. else was. Yeah. So that, that is not, I, I will tell you, listen, I'm not in the Biden campaign, but you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon comes from, uh, you know, her view would be the headquarters is there to support the states. That's all they're there to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, it, it, you know, obviously it's distributed now, but if they were in Philly under one roof, the Philly headquarters is there to support uh, the Michigan team and the Pennsylvania team. So, um, you know, talk to your local state folks, but again, don't be shy about lifting up your voice. Uh, if you see something that's not working, do it. Jen yeah. O'Malley. Yeah, she's a great, she's going to lead us to victory. She's amazing. Um, she's got a lot on her plate, obviously, but she's got the right orientation, which is her job is to support local volunteers and local staff in the States. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to personally call her, uh, and, and, and you vouch for her. She's a good person. Yes. She's okay. awesome. All right. Um, what else, what else can we do in our, our closing moments here? What else can we do to encourage people? Because you said earlier, you can tell people to do all these things in terms of making phone calls, going door to door or whatever. But you also said to us that it's also the candidate. The candidate has to has to say and do and promise things that we where we believe him that these things are going to get done. And that's how people will get inspired when they say, did you hear that Biden said he's going to do X? No. Well, he said it. Did you believe him? Yeah, I actually I did believe him. Um so what 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 is it that what you know just in, in case Joe Biden um and or people are listening to this uh what and you're not part of the campaign but what is your advice to them uh in terms of not the strategy of the actual get out the vote you know door to door business I'm talking about what can Joe say and do right now that where people are going to go damn it that's right you know, he said last week when somebody asked him about what if we do need to go into a two week or a two month lockdown just to eliminate this virus once and for all. He wasn't afraid to say, yeah, if that's what the scientists right. say, that's what we're going to do. And I thought, wow, nobody has said that. You know, what is it that he can say and do right now to create? OK, it won't be the same level of excitement, maybe that, that we all woke up with there in November of, of 08. But damn it, you know, I can't let this slide by. And if I. If I had his ear, I would just, I would say X, Y, and Z to him in terms of, if you say just this one thing, promise to do this one thing, I can't tell you how many people are, look, the people I, that are listening to this, they're not voting for Trump, but they might stay home or they might give up after three hours waiting in line. You got to have the, you got to have that thing in people where I'm not leaving this line. What can Joe Biden do right now in these, in these next 60 days? Well, you just have to maximize every moment. So I'd say uh, I'm going to put my old campaign hat on. So some of this is clinical, but you have to understand that uh, people out there are motivated by a lot of different issues. So there's no doubt that the core argument is going to be around the pandemic, around the economy, around the racial unrest, around the violence. Uh, and Biden's got to have a compelling message and execute on that and dominate Trump. But, you know, people care about climate change. People care about environmental uh, regulations. People care about pollution. People care about health care coverage expansion. People care about uh, supporting teachers. And so you have to understand that through interviews, through content that you put out there, through your surrogates who have credibility on those issues, 
uh, that you're able to reach people, right? It's super complicated in the campaign because it's not like one issue is all anybody cares about. Some people care about one issue above others. Some people care about seven or eight issues. And maybe, you know, I'll give you a small example. So over the weekend, I think the Associated Press maybe on their Twitter handle uh, posted something about the U.S. is going to get out of the Paris Climate Accords in X number of days. Joe Biden himself replied, and Joe Biden will get us back in in Y number of days. It was great, right? It was just a reminder to people like there's stakes here. So I think to, to be creating content, to be creating, you met, you had a great example. The, the, um, that answer in that interview was something that we all could share, right? Which is, hey, I'm excited about this. He was honest. This is what it takes. So make sure you're basically, uh, the, the core issues, and it's not one or two, it's probably 10 different issues. You're going to want people seeing you talking about those, those issues, creating content, getting the right surrogates out there, people with big followings on those issues and trust and credibility so that people have the information. I think my sincere belief here is that for most people listening to your program, again, he might not have been your first choice. Um, you may not think he goes far, far enough on some issues and others you may be satisfied. But he is going to have a platform. He's going to have spoken to these issues. He's even going to have content his campaign's putting out that might excite you. But you may not see it. It's hard to reach people. So again, I, I do want to put some of this burden back on all of us, which is we can't assume the campaign's going to handle everything or certainly the news media's. So if you see a clip from a Biden interview or an ad or a policy paper or an infographic or a policy expert on an issue you care about saying, you know what, I've really looked at what Joe Biden's planning here and I like it. Share it with people and lend your voice to it. Say, I didn't know this. I'm excited by this. And it makes me more excited about what I'm going to do over the next few weeks to help him win. Like the burden is on all of us. And I can't overstate the advantage the Republicans have in this regard. They have command and control. They have Fox, Breitbart, Sinclair, PragerU, uh, Ben Shapiro. You see all of them best performing uh, content. They have the incumbency. They have, the they have all of that. Okay. We do not have that. Okay. What we have is citizens. Okay. And if those citizens aggregate themselves, uh, not just in GeoTV, as important as that's going to be, but also in sharing content, sharing interviews, sharing infographics, it's incredibly important. And I think most of us, I do this all the time. My bias is if I post something on Twitter, it's anti Trump. Okay. And that's fine. But we all need to do a lot more pro-Biden. We just have to. Because you have identified, I think, a core issue in this election, which is we need to get the enthusiasm for level up. Now, if you've seen some of the polling after the Democratic convention, uh, you know, Joe Biden's favorable numbers have increased. That's great. But we, we need to see that continue. But the intensity is what matters. So somebody who is going to make, uh, somebody's going to vote. We need them then not just to vote but talk to their 50 friends and, and colleagues and, and family members. Someone who's going to do that also to volunteer. Someone who's going to do that also to volunteer on election day to be a poll walker. So like there's a whole funnel of activity here yeah. and a campaign can only be successful no matter how good your technology is. Uh, this is about the connection between people and a candidate. So we need to see that intensify. So Joe Biden, and this goes for Gary Peters or anybody running out there, has the the human capital they need to yeah. win a successful campaign. And by the way, Trump has an organization. He's got it. Okay. Right. They're out there talking to people They're in Michigan. Fired up. They're registered voters. Right. So we need to match what he has. That's one thing. I actually think in many respects, they've been harmed more by the pandemic from a political standpoint in terms of organization. Uh, I used to, I think I saw Michael a picture. This was back at the end of 19. Remember like Laura Trump and Katrina Pearson and all these grifters would fly around the country doing these Trump organizational events. I remember when I think in Grand Rapids, it had like 300 people. 
Okay, it scared me. Okay, so they were going to be all over the doors uh, throughout the summer and fall. They're still doing a little bit of that, but he's got that. And don't forget in Michigan, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, there are a lot more unregistered voters or registered voters who don't turn out, who look just like Trump's base than the Democratic base. So he's got a bunch of people out there and I guarantee you they're coming to the polls. Trump is going to get very strong turnout. So we have to match that. And that's the trick in any presidential campaign or any campaign in a swing state. You can't do it just on base alone or persuasion alone. You've got to do enough of each, particularly when your opponent is driving big turnout, which Trump will do. The only way to beat them to get enough raw votes is to win a healthy enough share of the persuadable vote and to drive new registrations and turnout. Mm-hmm. And I, that can be hard, right? Because those voters are not all the same, but a good candidate can reach them with the same message and motivate them and inspire them. But that's what we have to do. It is a false choice yeah. to say it's base or swing. I know that having run successful campaigns, you understand in some states it may be two-thirds swing, one-third base. In some states, it may be the opposite. It's mostly base swing, but they are equally important and they have to meet their mark because you can max out turnout in a state and if you falter persuasion lose and conversely you could do exactly what you want to do with swing voters and we saw what happened in 16 turnout in detroit turnout in milwaukee and some key areas uh was off by more than the number clinton lost by so we have to do it both and at the end of the day joe biden and his campaign have ultimate responsibility for that but we all do because the entire thing is at stake does anybody who's listening to this show really think the United States of America will survive four more years of this president? I do not think so. I do not think so. I mean, it could all be over, okay, which is hard to say. You know, we're watching our Netflix, right, and we have Wi-Fi, and, uh, you know, we can order our, you know, coffee on our phone, and everything seems great. But what's happening right now, and you made a great point, which is as he's basically destroying democratic institutions, as he's, uh, you know, mishandled the pandemic and caused almost 200,000 people to die, as we're in a recession, he's getting rid of every environmental protection known to man. Right. Uh, He's destroying our uh, climate here in the United States, our streams, our water. He's given uh, our federal lands to the oil companies. companies. Yeah, Yeah. right. So it's, it's, and, and, and that's when he's got to face the voters and has to be rehired. If this guy gets four more years, he's going to destroy this country. And so we all have to act accordingly, in my view. Before we go, just tell people what's going to happen when Joe Biden takes office that first day, that first week, that first month, just rattle off four or five things here that people need to hear that, that the fundamental things that are, are going to, you've mentioned the Paris uh, uh, deal. Just give us three or four other things that are, it's going to happen when Joe Biden is inaugurated. Well, I, he'll put forward through executive action, uh, a large number of environmental regulations. Some of those restoring ones that Trump got rid of an uh, additional new regulations, incredibly important. I'm sure there'll be healthcare legislation and he'll have a competent group of people working on the pandemic and the distribution uh, of the vaccine or the development of it. If it's been delayed, uh, he will be uh, renewing our relationship with their allies. He'll be sending messages uh, to dictators uh, that uh, the era of Trump is over uh, and we're going to treat them now um, not as friends and not as idols, <laughs> uh, but as people who uh, we will cooperate with them when they can. Uh, but they're a threat. I'm sure there'll be energy legislation introduced in Congress. Uh, there'll be uh, tax legislation introduced to make our tax code more fair. Uh, there'll be uh, a diverse, competent uh, 
um, executive branch staffed cabinet secretaries beginning to put forward uh, progressive judicial uh, nominees. So that first week, that first month, that first six month is going to be filled with action. Action. We're going to see change. We're going to see some changes right away. Yes, right away. And the other thing is a president who uh, doesn't, uh, you know, make us afraid to look at our phone or look at our TV, who is speaking with empathy, with competence, who handles crisis, who just quiets down everything. Yeah. So as much as there'll be urgency on legislation, on executive action, on diplomacy and foreign policy, uh, and there will be a lot of it, the way he'll do it will be appropriate which is he won't be in our face each and every day. Uh, he'll just be doing the hard work uh, with a talented group of people. And that's what we need to get back to. David, thank you so much uh, for being uh, on my uh, podcast on Rumble uh, here today. Um, uh, your book is great. It's called uh, A Citizen's Guide to Beating uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we're all on board. Even if we have different uh, politics or different ideas of how to go about things or whatever, this episode is airing on September 1st, um, and it's rent day for millions of Americans who can't pay the rent this month. Uh, people, millions who've lost their federal unemployment. Um, this is a dark time. You know this, David, for a lot of people on a personal level, and um, um, we don't have any, any choice but to end this madness. And uh, I thank you for what you've done over the years. I thank you for uh, uh, letting us all bringing, bringing Barack Obama to the American public and your role in that was so critical. And um, thank you for not giving up and continuing to fight that fight for all the well, rest Michael, of Well, Michael, thank you for all you're doing. Let's win Michigan. Uh, let's defeat yes. Donald Trump. And, and I think you make a great point, which is the, the plight and the fate and the struggles of those that are unemployed is not getting enough attention. Um, I, I think, and it's, you know, we've got the pandemic going on, we've got racial unrest, we've got Trump, you know, basically uh, inciting it. There's a lot of big issues out there. But I think, uh, we, and that's another thing we can all do. If we know someone who's been affected and they're comfortable sharing their story, to share it. Because there's a direct line between how Donald Trump mishandled this pandemic and someone has lost their job. That's right. Has lost their unemployment benefits, and and that price needs to be paid fully in this election. Uh, and that's ultimately, I think, who Joe Biden is going to go there to, to fight for. You know, think about a factory worker or a truck driver. Um, you know, who's out of work. I mean, that is in his DNA to think about what needs to be done uh, coming out of this pandemic on behalf of those people. So that's absolutely right. And that's another thing we can all do. If, if we know someone who is a nurse who didn't get enough protective equipment or someone who lost a loved one, and again, if only if they're comfortable sharing the story or someone who lost their job, lifting up those stories to remind people that this stuff didn't just happen. Okay, the rest of the world, maybe with the exception of Brazil, is moving on. They're in school. They're back to work. They're even going to sporting events and concerts. We alone, the nation's, the world's superpower, okay, so-called, uh, is the yep. one no. that is in the clutches of this pandemic. And there's only one reason for that. It's because we have an incompetent, heartless fool of a president. Uh, and Lord knows there's likely to be another pandemic in the next term. And by the way, if he doesn't have to face the voters again, he'll do five times worth the job with that one as he will with this That's one. Right. So it is just scary to think about this guy having uh, control of that awesome office and all its power for another four years. So there thank you, Michael. Yeah, thank you, David. And thank you for those final words there. Really appreciate it. And uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we've been talking to David Pluff, uh, author of uh, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. 
and the campaign manager of Barack Hussein Obama in 2008. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Michael. I want to welcome our new and extremely comfortable underwriter to Rumble, the pillow and mattress company. You've probably heard of them. You've seen their commercials on TV. Purple. Purple. What a great name, right? Purple. Purple. They have been listening to what we've been doing here in Rumble, and they decided that they want to support us. Purple. They make these extremely comfortable pillows and mattresses. The pillows uh, also, I just want to say, you know, just because I, I actually have one, it's, it's a pillow that is cool on both sides of the pillow. You don't have to keep turning the pillow over. And you'll see why, because it also, I love this feeling because it's got the pillow, the actual cushioning of the whole pillow is this grid. You feel the grid. It's, it's like all these little squares. It's so comfortable on your head and your neck, and it stays cool no matter which side you're using. So I want you to check them out. I want you to support them. They're supporting us. I'm very picky about um, who I let uh, be underwriters of this podcast. And I want to give you the information here so that you can try them out. Just go to purple.com slash rumble10, purple.com slash rumble10. And that's the number 10. Don't spell it out. And then when you get on their site, and whatever you're going to get there, you just have to use the promo code. There'll be a little box that says promo code. Just write in Rumble 10. That's it. And you get 10% off uh, any order over $200 or more. So that's purple.com slash Rumble 10, promo code Rumble 10. Okay, uh, in our in our final act here on Rumble today, um, I in addition to again reminding you if you live in Western Massachusetts to vote today for Alex Morse. If you are just a listener of this podcast, again my gratitude for the 15 million downloads that we've had in our first uh, uh, eight months. Uh, my congratulations to our 15 millionth listener, and uh, you know as I brought up there with David. Uh, this being uh, rent day for many people, many people who can't afford the rent, please make that phone call uh, to your member of Congress, to your senator, 202-225-3121, 202-225-3121. And before we go, I just want to say a few words about um, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, wow, it really hit me on Friday to learn of his his death at the age of 43 colon cancer and he's had he's had it since 2016 he he made black panther in 2017 it came out in 2018 during that whole time he had what what might have become and did become a fatal cancer he made seven different films and a, a couple of TV episodes or shows in that time that he knew eventually that he was dying. I can't get over that. I know you've, you know, you've heard the story over the weekend, the beginning of the week here, but 
so powerful, his work in such a short period of time. You know, back in the 50s, James Dean passed away before I think any of his films had been released. And um, so we're talking about Rebel Without a Cause, East of Eden, Giant. That's it. He made three films and is remembered to this day. I think that this is what's going to happen, too, with Chadwick Boseman. In such a short period of time, he played Jackie Robinson, the first black baseball player allowed to play in the major leagues back in the late 40s. Um, he played Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. He played Thurgood Marshall, our first black Supreme Court justice, played a, a story about Marshall as a young man where he helped to found the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. That movie was called Marshall. And then Black Panther, hands down, and I said this from the minute I saw this film, if you're into these, if you're into watching superhero films, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, there's nothing that comes close to matching this. It, it's the first superhero movie that even got an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. Don't get me wrong, there are many other very good ones. I know some of you don't watch superhero movies, and you know it seems like something for kids. But I'm telling you, my friends, same with that, how animation has become such an important art form. Animated films, Black Panther, these films powerful, powerful movies, powerful stories, beautiful, incredible cinematic experiences. And they also are talking about what we're living through and what's going on right now. Oh my God, it's so powerful. If you haven't seen this film, if you've put off seeing Black Panther because you don't watch, I'm not laughing at you. If you don't watch um, superhero films, I encourage you to watch it tonight, tomorrow night. You know, it's PG, I think, PG-13. It's, you know, it's, there's cartoon violence, not, you know, the, there's nobody knows blood spurting out or whatever. So you can, the, the tweens and the teens can definitely watch this. And I think even younger, uh, frankly, but your call. But watch this. On Sunday night, ABC just turned the whole night over to Black Panther and to Chadwick Boseman. It was very, very powerful evening. They showed Black Panther all two hours and 14 minutes of it with no commercials. And then they went right into a, a like a short doc on the life of Chadwick Boseman, if you have a chance to check that out. Anyways, I just, uh, oh, just I can't, it was after last week and at the end of the week that his death happens, it was such a difficult week. Kenosha, the white vigilante kid killing people, the, the white vigilante cops paralyzing Jacob Blake, seven shots in the back, the NBA and leading the charge with all the other major sports teams shutting down for two to three days on strike, refusing to provide the entertainment that the white community loves, loves having black people entertain them, whether it's on the basketball court or whether it's in the movies. And they said, no, that's we're not doing that for the next two to three days. And they shut down. All the racism night after night from the Republican convention, I don't know how people can take it. I can't take it. And then to have the weekend with Chad, Chadwick Boseman dying at the age of 43. He'd already done so much great work, so many important films about the, the country we live in. Who knows what else he would have done? I guess the, the challenge is the rest of us have to do that work. 
you know, whether it's in film or television or writing or music or whatever, or, or whether it's, you know, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing in your life, how you're raising your family, how you communicate with people, all the stuff. We're all involved in this. We're all in this together. Uh, we will miss Chadwick Boseman, but he lives on. He lives on in his work. Watch Marshall. Watch 42. Watch Black Panther. And and the other, I just didn't, I never saw anything that he wasn't great in. So um, do that. Wakanda forever. Black America forever. This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Tell me who's gonna see me from myself when this life is all I know. Tell me who's gonna see me from this hell without you. I'm not alone. Who gonna pray for me? Take my pain for me. I fight the world, I fight you, I fight myself I fight God, just tell me how many burdens left I fight pain and hurricanes, today I wept I'm trying to fight back tears, flood on my doorsteps Life in living hell, puddles of blood in the street Shooters on top of the building, government aid ain't relief Earthquake, the body drop, the ground breaks The poor run with smoke lungs and scar face Who need a hero? Hero You need a hero, look in the mirror, there go your hero Who on the front lines at ground zero? Hero My heart don't skip a beat even when hard times bumps the needle Mass destruction and mass corruption, the souls are suffering men Clutching on deaf ears again, rapture is coming It's all prophecy and if I gotta be sacrificed for the greater good Then that's what it gotta be Take my pain